We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. Ephesians chapter 4. Just want to thank those who have ministered to us already. Thank you, Lori and Matt, for leading us in song, and Pastor Caleb, Pastor Joey, for all the prayer you've prayed over this congregation and me. Let's stand as we read from Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope which belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Let's pray quickly and then you may be seated. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. That in some small way we might treasure your word, your call, your sacrifice, your blood, your church, and your, your son a little more when we leave than when we came in. Lord, if you'd be so kind as to work in hearts well, well beyond what a few words that you might speak through me are capable of in ways that we do not know. I pray that we'd be attentive to one another and to your word this morning. We ask for your help as we worship together. In your name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So the idea of calling is central to our text this morning. You'll have noticed that the word call appears four times in the first section. We're actually only going to get through the first four verses of this chapter today. But the word call appears in two pairs. First, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. So these two, these two pairs of calling are going to help structure what Paul is asking us to do today. As he asks us or urges us to walk worthy of the calling for which we have been called, he's, he's placing you in between these two realities of your call. You have been called out of darkness, but you've also been called to something. There's a hope to which you have been called. All of us have been called to this hope. And that hope that you have is because of your original call, that effectual call which God gave to you, which called you out of darkness into his light. And so Paul is telling you, in in some way, connect these two calls. Walk out of one call into the next. So this walking that we're called to, this, this idea of a Christian vocation, is not an intermediate step. He's not saying, 
preoccupy your time while you're waiting for the real thing. He's helping you understand you're walking now in light of that eternal call, that eternal hope to which God has been has called his saints and been calling his saints to. So keep that in mind as we, as we move through this text. A piece of context I actually wasn't going to give, but I, I will give now with the, the songs that Matt chose align so well with it. Think of the last verse of the first song we sang. Let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. There's a, there's, I think the mind of Paul as he writes this is in a particular place, and I really don't have time to draw it all out. But he starts by saying, I urge you as a prisoner. And he talks about this bond of peace. And he talks about how Christ ascended on high and led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And then think of Psalm 68 that we read. That psalm that was full of imagery of the conquering king that came and, and plundered Egypt on behalf of his saints and gave that plunder back to his saints for the worship of God. That, that king which destroyed the enemy and has led a host of captives. I think Paul sees himself in that royal procession here. As, as he is a prisoner of God, in, in, in a way, he is freed from the enemy, but he has been called to something, and he's bound to that call. And so as he urges you, he's not urging you as a commander, but as a prisoner, and he wants you to catch that motif. He wants you to understand how this is working. God has called you to something, and that calling should capture us, and it should capture us in certain ways, together in unity. So this pattern of walking in light of eternity is is a pattern for all of Christian walking. There is no Christian without the call which affects your faith. That same God which called to Lazarus in the tomb and called him out of darkness, and Lazarus came up and went forth, that, that same power that raised Christ from the dead, this is the call that God has effected in your life today if you have faith in the Lord. But that call to which you have been called to is what you are now walking towards. And so if we're to understand what Paul has in mind for us, if we're to understand verses 2 and 3, what it means to walk worthy of it, we need to understand what is that call. What is that hope to which we are called? So to get a taste of this, let's look at what Paul has already written. Let's look at chapter 1 just for a second. Okay, The very beginning. Paul begins exactly where he wants to end. He wants to urge these people towards something. Paul's writing to create a certain type of people And so he begins with the very foundational doctrine of your calling. Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, something we're going to be, something we're headed towards, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Skip just for a moment to verse 10. I guess it'll make a little more sense with verse 9. He is making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. So what is the purpose of this adoption? As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. 
So we're skimming this first part, looking for the things that are future, that God has put in motion that we are headed towards. Look at verse 12. So that we who were first to first, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So these three verses, there was there was holiness in the first one, there was glory in the last one, and there was unity in the middle. Those three really can be a summary of what the Christian is called to. Holiness, unity, and glory. But glory is the result of our holiness and our unity. And our unity is affected through our righteousness, through our, our holiness that God is equipping and has given us. So the emphasis, I think, that Paul really wants to focus on is this idea of righteousness, this calling to holiness. You are called to holiness, brothers and sisters. Your call is to be united with him for glory. I want you to turn then also to 1 Thessalonians. As I find my place here, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is just to re-emphasize the fact. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. So think about this. I'm trying to figure out how to make holiness become a vision of hope this morning. That's, that's what I'm aiming for, okay? So as Paul says in chapter 1 of, first, of Ephesians, he says, God predestined you to, be, to stand holy and blameless before him in love. That's to be a hope. So imagine yourself before the piercing eyes of the righteous Christ, and he looks at you, and he can see in you and through you and over you, and he knows you, And as you stand there, you stand holy. You stand blameless before God. That's that's the hope that Christians are called to. That is the wonder. To To be in His presence and for it not to be judgment, but to be wonderfully glorious for God because we are holy in Him. Jesus told you about the blessedness of this. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for righteousness. So what is this holiness, what is this righteousness going to look like? Turn with me again. We're we're scouring a few places this morning. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. This is a picture of what that holiness will look like. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult 
and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteous deeds of the saints. The fine linen which God is going to clothe us with. This is what Christ speaks of when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But that's the catch, isn't it? The hungering and the thirsting. It's, it's kind of easy, I guess, in some way to think of that and say you want it. But really, really when it comes down to it, it is hard to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's easy to hunger after the things that the world hungers for. It's easy to hunger for success or for belonging or for significance in what you do or, or um, just prestige or for joy or for pleasure. These things are, are readily easy to hunger and thirst for. But righteousness, holiness, that, that peculiar beauty which belongs to God, that's difficult. It's difficult. So does that put us in a predicament now? Or if we're to walk worthy of the calling to which he has called us to, and we're called to holiness, but we don't hunger and thirst for it, what, what are we to do? Well, Paul understands this challenge. Paul understands it. And he's not going to leave you without help. But I want to suggest to you That one of the reasons why it's difficult to hunger and thirst for holiness is because you need, (laughs) this is my own experience, right? I'm not an arts guy. I never thought art was pretty at all. I didn't know how to appreciate it until I took an art appreciation class in college. And not all of it was great, but some of it was, wow, that really is impressive. You need an appreciation for the beauty of of holiness. We're used to the beauty that we can see physically, and that's, that teaches us something about the attractiveness of beauty. But that beauty that God wants is a beauty of holiness. Isaiah 63, we read this morning, where there's a cry for mercy, and he says, Look down from heaven to see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where your zeal and your might, this, where are your zeal and might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Or, notice Psalm 29. You don't have to turn there. But it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In both cases, the writer of Scripture is stirred up by this beauty of holiness. But what if you don't feel stirred up by that? Ought these passages to draw you out? Should the beauty of holiness make your heart go forth and and long for it? Yes. Yes, it should. Might you be ashamed that that calling doesn't, doesn't move you like you want it to be? Want it to? Well, yes, it is shameful, I guess, that the greatest calling in the world can come to you and lull you to sleep. Holiness is not what stimulates naturally. But this is why Paul prays in the first part of Ephesians. 
Turn again to Ephesians chapter 1. We're getting back to our text. Ephesians chapter 1. After laying out the beauty of this call, he says in verse 14 of chapter 1, well, and starting in, I'm sorry, starting in, um, in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your understanding, of, or the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So, did you catch that? Paul prays that the eyes of your heart would be able to see this holiness, this glory, that you'd be able to exult in it. But what if you've prayed? What if you know Ephesians? You know it well. You can quote these. You can give textbook answers. But holiness doesn't inspire you still. Holiness doesn't draw you out. What then? In your praying, do you you just pray and you wait for a sudden endowment of of holiness uh, desire, a a sudden hunger and thirst? And once I get hungry, once I get thirsty, then I can go out and do what Paul asked me to do. Well, I don't think that's quite it. Certainly there's praying. But the fact that Paul prays that you would know the hope of your calling, and then a few chapters later tells you to walk worthy of that calling, should tell you something about the way the agency of Scripture works, or the way way this word is meant to compel you. In other words... Paul didn't give you a 10-volume set on the hope of your calling and then tell you, go read it and memorize it, and once you're studied up on it, live a certain way. There's a sense in which no Christian should ever be able to say, I just don't know enough to obey the call that has come to me. That's not it. Nevertheless, there is a walking, according to knowledge here, Walk worthy of the calling to which you have called. You have to know that. There's a reason Paul spends a few chapters putting these profound words together to create a worship-filled people to make this house that is holy a temple for the Lord. Theology affects things, but how does this function together? And I think the answer lies in the fact that the prayer which Paul prays is in part affected by the command or the urging that Paul gives. There's a sense in which you can appreciate beauty by reading about it, by knowing it, and by the Spirit giving it to you. But how much more can you see the beauty of God's way when you delight to see it as you walk it? As you walk it. So consider this. While it's right to observe that Paul usually frontloads his epistles with theological truth and backloads them with instructions that are imperative for the Christian walk, we, we do be careful not to put such a, a sharp distinction that we think they're separate or not related. He urges you to do something, assuming the knowledge that you have is sufficient to do what he's urged you to do. So, when we pray, we trust that the Lord will equip us to do what he has called us to do. Consider Psalm thirty-seven twenty-three: The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. 
So do not worry about your steps. The Lord is going to establish those. This passage reminds me of a little infant who doesn't even know how to walk, but when you get them up on their feet, the joy that they have just to be on their feet immediately makes them outrun their ability to balance. And immediately they trip, they fall, and but they don't hit their head because the parent hasn't let go of the hand, right? This is the idea of you will not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. What does Jesus say to the lame man when he heals him? Does he say, your joints are sound, your nerves are connected, your muscles are strong, your bone density is there? No, he says, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. God has affected something in you this morning. If you're a Christian, God has called you to something. And that call began with God's work in your life. And as he draws you to do certain things, he is calling you to trust him and to walk in a manner worthy of that call. In one sense, the entire goal of the Christian walk can be summed up in this idea of to delight. To delight in the way of God. This isn't a fake it till you make it sort of Christianity where you say, I'm going to put God to the test. I'm going to see if his way is right. I'm going to start walking and maybe God will help me out. This is, I read in the word that God's path is good. I delight in it when I see it. And when I get up and walk it, it is a delight for me. And the delight is perpetual. As we, as we walk in God's way, we see this is what the word was talking about. And so I want us to remember, as Paul urges us, this is not an urge, urging to walk out of nothing. A call has already taken place. And yet, don't feel hopeless if you don't feel the weight of holiness or the beauty of holiness that should compel you towards this walk. Trust the Lord to establish your steps as you delight in his path. So that's what I want to summarize real quickly where we're at. Okay? So first we said, Paul doesn't just care about actions. He also cares about right reasons and motivations. He wants you to walk worthy of your call. He wants you to know what your call is, and then he's going to urge you. Second, he wants you to be rightly motivated. And to be rightly motivated, you must know something about the call to which you've been called. But third, knowing it is not accomplished only with the mind. Knowing comes through the eyes of the heart, as Paul prayed here. So the knowing of your call comes about not only by study and academics, but also by walk according to what God has given you to do. And so forth, God opens the eyes of your heart through many means, including the word written and preached, the prayers of the saints, both yours and others for you, and by your walking in his path. The submitting of obedience shapes you. So just to set this point in stone, turn back to Thessalonians, but 2 Thessalonians this time, and I want you to see how this works. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 5. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm going, to, I'm going to skip right to verse 11 for sake of time. 
To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Christ Jesus. Every resolve. How many resolves for good have utterly failed for us? All of them, almost. I might just say all of them. But God says, or Paul says, his prayer for you is that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every working according to his grace. So this walking that we're talking about is a stepping out into this prayer that God will fulfill what he has put in your heart that resolve that call for holiness. And I do want to linger on this last part, according to the grace of our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Put it like this. The gospel never, never comes to you and says, look at this beauty, look at this holiness, look at how good it is. Don't you want it? Wait, make sure you're worthy of it. Walk worthy of your calling. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel is not a carrot dangled out in front of you. The gospel is, look at this righteousness. Look at this holiness. Look at this beauty. Do you see it? If you see it, it's because God's call has been effective in your life. If you have a call to walk worthy of this. So to even want it, to even begin, is to understand that it's been of grace from the beginning. It's only by the blood of Christ, through his cross, when his flesh was torn in two, and his body was crucified there. It's in that way that he called you. And that work of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, had an effect on you. And if you see any beauty in Christ... If you see any beauty and holiness, any righteousness to be longed for, pray that God would stir it up more, that you might walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So how then ought we to walk? Well, that's really the point of Ephesians chapter 4 and the first three verses for our consideration today. It's interesting to note Paul doesn't begin with a list of what's. Do this and this and this. He begins with a list of how. In anything you do, in whatever you do, this is the manner in which you ought to walk. You ought to walk humbly, gently, patiently, bearing with one another in love, eagerly to maintain unity and the bond of peace. These things map onto whatever we do. These are not specific things that must be done. And these come, these come in a few sets. Notice humbleness and gentleness. Notice patience with bearing and love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. These are three sets of two. Each one has a major emphasis with a practical underpinning or working. So when he calls you to humility, he says, You're called to humility, but that works out like gentleness and humility and gentleness. 
Why is humility fitting for your call? So that's what we're about to do for this next section. We're going to take these three things, we're going to step through them, and I want to connect them to that call of God. We want to see why this is worthy of that. Why is it worthy to walk humbly because of your call? And the answer I'd give to you first and foremost is humility is worthy of your call because you were not. (laughs) None of us were worthy of that call. The dignity of that call is so high and so great. It is profoundly unfitting for anyone to try to walk in such a way that would put on airs or or strut. The the calling is so high. Nobody, nobody, nobody deserves that. So we're to walk humbly with one another. Paul reminds you that to walk worthy of it is to walk with humility and gentleness. Christ is the one who called you and the one whose sandal straps you are not worthy to untie. How fitting it is to walk humbly with your God who has called you and to walk humbly with your brothers and sisters with whom you've been called. And the visible expression of this is is gentleness. This, This is the horizontal one. No one is gentle with God. God is gentle with you. So you are gentle with one another. Certainly we walk humbly with our God, but gentleness is towards one another. Consider Proverbs 15.4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. It it, It preserves, I'm sorry, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness breaks the spirit. Psalm 18 And this psalm, Psalm 18, is a psalm full of imagery of strength and might. But hidden in there, it says, You have given me the shield of salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You know, we we want to raise children who are strong in the Lord, children who are going to, to fight against the world and the flesh and the devil and are going to pursue the Lord's causes Are we giving them an example that is worthy of their call? Are we showing them the gentleness that God has shown us in that? Or how about our marriages? Are you gentle with your spouse? Are you gentle in such a way that draws them and is fitting to the call that God has given you? Remember, you're not greater than your call. Your call is greater than you. Therefore, gentleness is what is appropriate. I wonder if you exempt yourself from gentleness at times. Are there times when you think, but that's so bad. That view is so crazy. That that mannerism is just so irksome. Something's got to be said. Now, no, there's, there's no exceptions with one another. Gentleness comes and puts, themself, puts itself under everyone else and says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, and I urge you to walk in this way. Didn't Paul give us an example? Right as he started this chapter, this is, how, this is what gentleness and humility look like. But gentleness will not persist long without patience. Without patience. So how does this connect to our call? How does patience connect? Turn with me to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to try to connect patience with our call. 
Second Peter chapter 3, we'll be looking at the, the end portion of this chapter. Starting in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away, and a roar with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I used to think of this passage only in one way. I used to remind myself, okay, it's been several thousand years since Jesus came and died on the cross, so it feels like it's taking a long time, but for God, that's been like a day. So, all right, I just need to be patient, right? I can wait. And that's, that's a good truth. God is not tarrying or delaying or quibbling over maybe he's going to do it or maybe not. God has set a day, he has appointed a day, and he will return. And we should be eager for that, but know that God is not waiting around. But the reverse of this is also true. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. The eagerness that He has for that day, for the revealing of His Son in glory, for the judgment of all unrighteousness, for the, for the purity of His bride clothed in linen, the eagerness that God has for that day, for Him to wait but a day, is like a thousand years. And yet, he waited for you. He was not willing that any of you would perish, but that all of you would come to repentance. And so he waited, and he waited for you. How fitting it is, then, to be patient with one another. To be patient with one another. God has waited so that that call might come not just to the people in that day, not just to the people in the Reformers' day, but to you. Now, how how impatient we often are, though, with one another. We have to bear with each other for but a few hours each week, and yet it seems like we're always on the edge. Maybe you just barely, barely were patient. It's fitting to be patient with one another because when you do that, one, one act of patience, one, one restraint of the word that could have been said hastily or the, the tone that could have been set or the, the turning away that could have made someone miscalculate what you, what you really thought, one act of patience with someone communicates the hope of your call perhaps more powerfully than any word you could have come up with to respond in that moment. Just to be patient with one another is a picture of God towards you, of how God called you. And so just just the simple 
bearing with one another in love, is fitting for your call. Sometimes it doesn't take fancy words. Sometimes it just takes walking with one another for your call to be made real to someone else through your faith. Consider 1 John. Turn to 1 John chapter 2, if you would. We ought to bear with one another in love. And this is just connecting love to our call. That's the point of turning to this, this passage. 1 John 2 and verse 29. One moment. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. If our call is holiness, purity is fitting. To have a hope to see God is to be pure. And to have that hope is to be a son of God. What manner of love is it that gives you sonship, adoption in God? This is why love and bearing with one another is fitting for your call. He made you a son. And just to have the hope of seeing God as he is one day purifies you as he is pure, and it fits with what he has called you to, which is the hope of righteousness. But we're going to close with the last one here eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're back in Ephesians chapter 4. This is a peculiar phrase. It doesn't, really doesn't appear quite in this connection anywhere else. So I want to unpack it just for a second, or do my best if I can. There's a, there's a unity attributed to the Holy Spirit, and there's a peace that's acting... Like a, like a rope or a fetter that's binding together. And I think these two statements are put in parallel purposely. So there's unity of the Spirit and bond of peace. So unity and bond. You can see, that, you can see how that's similar. United and bound. Of the Spirit, Spirit and peace. The Spirit and peace are often related to one another. You, I mean, you can think of um, the Lord's baptism when the Spirit descends on him like a dove and the dove is a symbol of peace. My son is here not in judgment but in peace. Um, or you can think of how Christ preached peace just in the chapter, uh, in chapter 2, I'm sorry, two chapters before where we're at, chapter 2 of Ephesians, where it says in verse, uh, let's start in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through his cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we both have access and one spirit to the Father. So the peace of God is what's accomplished by Christ on the cross. But that's communicated to you how you have access to the Father. That is translated to you or actualized by the work of the Holy Spirit. So I think when it talks about the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, these two things map on similar to the other things where we say the unity of the Spirit is this this large um, unity, this theological truth that God has effected for you, and it's through the Spirit. It's this unity that you have in the Spirit. God has made peace between you and the Father. But there's this bond of peace. And we can't get away from the fact that when he says eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, he's not saying you need to be eager to maintain your salvation or eager to maintain what God, Christ has accomplished for you on the cross. No, now he's talking again in that horizontal direction. So there's the vertical, I have peace with God that was affected by the Holy Spirit. But there's the horizontal, I have a bond with my brother, a kinship of peace that is here. So when Paul says, eager to maintain that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we understand, well, apparently, apparently that theological truth, that vertical truth, can lose its horizontal vividness, if that's a word. It's, it can come to a place where I don't see it like I ought to see it. It's not to say that the vertical truth is in any way in jeopardy, but the horizontal truth might always be in jeopardy as long as we walk in sin. Therefore, the posture of the heart is eager to see it. The, the, that eagerness to maintain is... I was helped by some definitions that put it to like this. It's, it was an eagerness to see to it. It's like unity, see to it. See that it happens, right? You want to see it with your eyes. I want to know that it's there. And I want to be eager to see it. Why? Well, the horizontal piece that you see with one another who share in that same call, who have that same hope, is an evidence of that vertical piece which, God has, which Christ has affected for you and the Holy Spirit applied to you. So your eagerness to see that peace in one another is connected to your call because you're eager to see righteousness. You're eager to see holiness. And if you want to know, yes, Christ has made peace with me, you want to see that bond of peace with one another. So it, so it connects. And it should, be, it should help us be motivated to see that peace in one another. Therefore, we might think of ways in which we would see that peace affected. Everyone sitting here has a particular role that they play. It may not be official. It may be. You may have certain things that you do out of habit every time you're here. I always wipe, wipe off the, the spout and make sure the sink's cleaned out. I always make sure that the kids are not getting hurt in the back room when I hear screaming. Everyone has a certain role to play. In that role, how are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? What are you doing to see that peace that you have with one another? How can the quality of work that you do level out the bumps that can otherwise be stirred up? How can the motivations for what you do keep friction from being a point of disunity? How can you 
put someone else in your mind as you're doing something so that you might show, yeah, I'm, I'm eager in what I'm doing to see the peace of God at work in brothers and sisters. Peace among sinners is not a natural thing. It must be sought. It must be desired and wanted. I think <laughs> this was convicting for me in my own um, work. Pastor Caleb has reminded us two weeks in a row of the purpose. Why were deacons even a thing in the first place? Well, there were, there were Hellenist and Jewish widows who were, some were being neglected and others were not. There was a division that arose and a deacon was meant to go and say, we're going to make peace. We're going to reunite these sisters in the Lord. We're going, to, we're going to right the injustice that is being done, and we're going to call them to one another. Everyone has a role to play in fostering unity and peace. But one, and I'm closing with this, one, one way that came to mind today as I was thinking about how do we see to it peace? How do we want to see peace? This is just something that has been in my mind for the past few months, and I just share it, not as something that is... Um, stipulated as you must do this, but has been helpful for me. When, when we partake of the elements that we're about to do, we're partaking of the same body and the same blood, right? The whole point of doing this together is many in one. It's, it's all of you, us, partake of the same body and the same blood. It's supposed to be a visual reminder of the unity of that bond of peace that is there. And for so long, I never, ever did anything with communion with my eyes open. It was all introspective and introverted in some way. But maybe, you can consider it, maybe, after you've considered, am am I coming in a worthy manner? Maybe you open your eyes and you watch that brother, maybe the one that you kind of rub shoulders with, or that sister that makes you feel a little uh, unsure. Maybe you look her in the eye or him in the eye as you drink and you eat and you say, it was one body. It was one blood. We're together. And let it be a visual reminder that this bond of peace, you can see to it. You can see to it. So in closing, I just want to summarize for you where we've been. So we've learned from Paul, he cares not only about right actions, but right motives and right reasons. And you're to find ways of reminding each other about the calling that Christ has given you. If you want everyone here to be aimed towards one call with one hope, consider, how do I stir up one another to love and good works? How can I put the call of God before one another? Maybe in conversation, right? It's how was your week today, brother? It was good. How did God put the call of God, the hope that you're headed towards, how did he put that in your mind this week? Well, you know, I was, I was vacuuming the floor. And I was remembering, you know, I'm just making this up on the fly. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm vacuuming the floor. I'm not going to have to vacuum floors in heaven. But what am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to serve And it's not going to be begrudging anymore. I'm not going to have to bear with one another. I'm going to love. (laughs) Maybe I will be doing something as mundane as vacuuming a floor 
in the new heaven and the new earth. But righteousness is going to dwell there. And it's going to dwell in here. And I'm going to love it. That's how God brought the hope of his calling into my life. Maybe it's something like that. Third, remember it's not natural. It's not natural to view holiness as something that you want. So be patient with one another. Someone else doesn't see it that way or someone else is struggling. It's been hard this week. I don't know. I can't think of anything. Patient with them. Encourage them. Pray for them. That you might get a, a sight of this hope. So that's the fourth point. Pray for one another. Pray that the eyes of our hearts might know the hope that God has called us to. That we might walk worthy of this calling to which we've been called. Brother, would you come to this?